Welcome and thank you for tuning in to listen to our next episode of our podcast, We Buzz, produced by Animal Concepts. My name is Sabrina Brando, and we help you care for animals and for yourself and support you in your other goals, such as conservation, education, and research. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Jane Goodall, BBE, who through nearly 60 years of groundbreaking work has not only shown us the urgent need to protect chimpanzees, from extinction, she has also redefined species conservation to include the needs of local people and the environment. Today, she travels the world speaking about threats facing chimpanzees and environmental crises, urging each of us to take action on behalf of all living beings and the planet we share. Among many other activities, Dr. Goodall hosts the Hopecast podcast, speaks about hope and love in stories of a generation, and shares our insights into animal intelligence, conservation, and activism on Masterclass. So welcome, Dr. Goodall. Well, thank you for inviting me to this, this interesting podcast. Very much looking forward to our conversation. And we always like to start the podcast with the podcaster talking about their early connection to animals. So we would be delighted if you would share some of your experiences. Well, I was born loving animals. People say, where did that come from? I don't know, it must, maybe something happened in my mother's womb, but I was born loving them. And when I was just one and a half years old, my mother found I'd taken a whole handful of earthworms to bed with me. And she said, Jane, you are watching them so intently. I think you were wondering how do they move without legs? So it was the early curiosity, you know, and when I was, uh, collecting hen's eggs when staying on a farm and asking everybody, but where does the egg come from? Because I couldn't see a big enough hole on the hen. And when nobody told me, I waited in an empty hen house for apparently four hours and saw a hen lay an egg. And I have to say there that one of the things that really was significant was my supportive mother, because they didn't know where I was. They'd even called the police. And it was getting towards evening when she saw this little girl rushing towards the household covered in straw. And so many mothers, because of their, you know, fear would have just reacted. How dare you go off with telling, without telling us, don't you dare do it again, which would have crushed that early scientific curiosity. But she sat down to listen to how a hen lays an egg. And from then on through my childhood, you know, there was no television back then. And I was outside. I was watching the squirrels and the birds and the insects around my home. And just always curious to know more and more, waiting for hours to watch as a bird made a nest, laid eggs, hatched the babies, fed the babies, you know, that sort of thing. And, uh, well... I was traveling around the world 300 days a year before COVID, but since COVID, I've been here. So I'm talking to you from the very house where I grew up, where I was, you know, fostering that love of animals outside, um, 
up in the tree that I can see from the window, feeling near the birds. And so it's uh, it's been quite a fascinating journey for me, this life. Yes, it resonates very much with me because my father would also, when I was little, take me, you know, watching the birds and buy me books about animals. And so, yeah, that's that really that curiosity. And indeed, you know, we're going to talk a little bit more later also about roots and shoots and, you know, how do we, um, yeah, encourage young people to stay curious and to stay active and connected to the living world. Yes, and, and of course, today, uh, a lot of your activities are indeed from behind the screen. Uh, with COVID times, your schedule has changed, but it seems you're not less busy. But perhaps you can talk a little bit to us about in what ways have you, apart from the podcast and so on, you know, in what ways do you stay connected and, and sharing your messages of hope and connect and, and really also talking about this interconnectedness and interrelatedness of all of us? Well, you know, when when the pandemic began, I was actually on my way to Belgium, um, to Brussels to give a talk for Compassion in World Farming. And I was actually in the car on the way to the airport, frantic message from my sister saying, come back, come back. Uh, they, they've shut down the UN building, which is where the conference was. And so from that moment on, that was March, two years ago, um, you know, I, I've, I've been here. So at first I was angry and frustrated. And, and then I thought, well, that's not helping anything. So with a wonderful team from the Jane Goodall Institute, we created Virtual Jane. And Virtual Jane has been, I would say, twice as busy as when I was traveling the world. I mean, seriously, because every single day, it's been interviews like this one, it's been podcasts, it's been uh, video messaging to the different Jane Goodall Institutes around the world, you know, encouraging them. Uh, it's it's been literally non-stop. So in one day I can be in four countries. So the that the downside is being mostly exhausted, but the silver lining is the fact that I've managed to reach literally literally millions more people in many more countries than had I been doing my traveling. And I've come to realize that although it's not the same as traveling and actually being with people. Nevertheless, it still can have an impact. And I think the hardest thing for me to do has been these virtual lectures, you know, lectures to a, to a university because you don't get any feedback. You're talking to a little green camera spec on the top of the laptop. And you say something funny, you don't get any laughter. I mean, it, it's really difficult. But my mother always told me, Jane, if you're going to do a thing, you must do it properly. Give it all you've got. So right from the beginning, I knew that I had to have the same energy and passion in my voice as if I was live in a, in a big auditorium. Yes, that's just wonderful. It's also so inspirational to all of us, right? When, when you look at the podcast you do and the interviews and then look at the comments of people, people are inspired also because you bring that sort of energy and that sort of, you know, giving it you all. And, uh, and you really, you know, 
talk about animals everywhere, like compassion in world farming. You know, we're going to talk a little bit about zoos and sanctuaries, and of course, studying and, and caring for animals in the wild and the wild places they inhabit. So can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, the importantness of uh, the importance of partnerships in animal protection or environmental protection and conservation? And in what ways have you found that, you know, those partnerships, those collaborations can really flourish? Well, I think they're most important because we face such major problems today that no organization alone can do nearly enough. But if you manage to find other organizations or individuals, the same passion, the same commitment, the same values, and you get together, then together you can do more than each one separately, the combination of each one separately. So partnerships are really, really important. And you know, the other thing we have to remember, which is difficult, is that we're animals too. And you know, a lot of the very strident animal rights groups are always on about, you know, this people are so cruel to animals. Well, we're cruel to each other. I mean, look what's happening in Ukraine now. Look at the innocent citizens, the children who are being harmed and, and their future destroyed. So there's something in us. And if we find the right organizations to collaborate with, we can sort of spread this message and try and share values about the sanctity of life, whether it's animal, human, human, animal, animal, human, we're all one and yet we're different. So we are responsible for the harm that we're causing around the globe. Yes, and it's, it's very much about what I hear you say is about finding a common ground. Like even if we have differences of philosophies or perspective, or we're looking through different lenses that, that, you know, regardless of those, we also try and find what is our common ground and how can we then work together to make it better for yeah, us as animals and, and being kind to each other and caring for other animals and the greater community of life and the planet we share. Yes, that's right. I mean, that's, that, that's the whole point of everything I do is to help people understand. You know, I learned out in the rainforest how every species of animal and plant had a role to play. It was all connected. It's like a tapestry of beautiful colors, a living tapestry of life. And as a species becomes locally extinct, it's like pulling a thread from that tapestry. And if enough threads are pulled, the tapestry will hang in tatters and that ecosystem will collapse. And we have to realize we are part of the natural world. And not only that, we depend on it for food, for water, for air, for everything, but we depend on healthy ecosystems. And that's why conservation, understanding the interconnectedness of everything is so really important. Yes, and in some of your uh, podcasts and interviews, you talk about also about, of course, living in the city. We know that, you know, some decades from now, most of the people will be living in cities and the, our disconnect from, if you like, the natural world becomes even more easy, if you like, because we, are, we don't necessarily, so we have to bring, if you like, nature into the city or we have to nourish, you know, whether it's a park or in your balcony. And perhaps can you talk to us a little bit about that aspect of like living in cities and urban, urban environments? 
Yeah, well, first of all, even in a city, we're still depending on the natural world for every, every breath of air we take. But the big problem today is a disconnect between people and nature, and especially worrying in children. And it's been proved by science that for healthy psychological development, young children need to be in nature. And that's why it's tremendously important for people living in a city to try and get out, even if it's just in a park or a little garden or sitting under a tree. I think urban tree planting is tremendously important. It's part of the Jane Goodall Institute's effort to replant as well as protect forests, but it's to replant and plant trees in urban areas. And uh, this, this, this enables the children growing up in those inner cities to at least get some of the energy that they need, some of the spiritual connection to the natural world that's so important and that we're losing as young people spend more and more time, even if they're in an area with nature, they're not really in nature. They're always on their, you know, social media. And, and it's tragic to me. I've seen children out in a beautiful place. They're not looking. They're not listening to the birds. They're just, you know, back and forth with their buddies on some kind of social media. And it's tragic. Yes, absolutely. And it's there's so many details there also. You know, when in a, in a city or in an urban environment where indeed we depend, of course, on on the air we breathe, but also in what ways, you know, when we're thinking about connecting with in, in families or with our friends, how, for example, playgrounds, right? We often, at least that's what I've seen in some of my neighborhoods is where we clear the trees and then we create a playground. Um, and then, you know, it seems even more this sort of disconnect to really see how do we you know, keep trees and the living world part of and that being the playground rather than these sorts of artificial uh, environments. Um, yeah, there's so many details there that are very interesting to think about, when, especially when we're when your job, if you're listening and you're like an urban planner, in what ways do we, you know, um, respect the trees as well as uh, other animals when we design and build. And, and talking about trees, sorry, go ahead. So I was going to say, uh, on that subject, I read something wonderful the other day that when these urban planners are creating a new, you know, a new area for the affluent, they first of all bulldoze down all the trees to create the housing, and then they name the streets after the trees they cut down. Yes, yes, oak tree, elm tree, yeah, like in remembrance of, um, yeah, yeah, it is, it is ironic. So, and, and talking about trees, you know, we're going to come back and talk about, you know, uh, roots and shoots and younger, empowering younger people, but clearing, you know, clear cutting the forests and, and going back to, you know, your, your work around chimpanzees, but of course, many other animals that are in forest areas. Um, but can you talk just a little bit about threats to chimpanzees, you know, like clear cutting or agricultural purpose in, in what ways are, are, chimpanzees facing threats in the wild and in what ways also when we're talking about action or empowering people what are the things that people could think about when they are choosing with their wallet yes well uh, <clears throat> when i first realized the rapidity with which chimp numbers were decreasing across africa 
was in 1986 at a big conference. By that time, there were six other field study sites in Africa, uh, in Chimp Habitat. When I began in 1960, it was just me. There was nobody else. Nobody had tried to study chimps in the wild, but by 86. So we decided to bring the researchers together, uh, the head researchers in a conference. And the purpose really was to discuss how chimp behavior might differ in different environments, which behavior didn't differ. But we had a session on conservation. It was shocking. That's where I realized you know, the problems faced by the chimps. So got together a bit of money and I visited those study sites. And I learned a lot. I learned about the growing bushmeat trade. That's the commercial hunting of wild animals for food. And in some countries that includes chimpanzees. In some countries, chimpanzees were killed for witchcraft or medicinal purposes. Um, chimpanzee mothers were killed to steal the babies so that they could sell them either locally as pets or overseas for entertainment, pets and so on, or zoos, medical research back then, uh, chimpanzees being caught in snares set by hunters for antelopes, bush pigs and so on, and either dying of, of gangrene because they usually managed to break the wire snare, but they couldn't undo the noose, which of course have got tighter and tighter so often lost a hand or a foot. There was one tragic bit of film I watched of a chimpanzee, young chimpanzee in Uganda. She was about nine years old. Her mother had been shot. She had a baby sister and she, had, she was trying to look after this baby sister, but she had no hands. It was the most tragic little, little scene, illustrating brutality on the one hand and the the compassion and altruism of chimpanzees on the other. So I, I learned all about the problems facing the chimps, but I also learned about the problems facing so many of the African people living in and around chimpanzee habitat. You know, the crippling poverty, the lack of good health and education facilities, the degradation of the land as populations grew and moved further and further into chimp habitat. And when I flew over Gombe, which had been part of the equatorial forest belt stretching across Africa in 1960 and in 1970, but by the late 1980s, it was just this little island of forest surrounded by bare hills and the people struggling to survive, their land over farmed and infertile, too poor to buy food from elsewhere. And that's when it hit me. If we don't help these people, find ways of making a living without destroying the environment. They're cutting down the trees to make new land for farming or to make that little bit of money from charcoal or timber. And so that began the Jane Goodall Institute's program, Takari, very holistic, working with the people. And um, anyway, it's been highly successful. And the people have realized protecting the environment isn't just for wildlife, it's for their own future. And they become our partners in conservation throughout chimp habitat in Tanzania and in six other African countries where JGI is working. Yes, it's absolutely wonderful to see the programs. And for the last 13 years, I have volunteered for the Pan-African Sanctuary Alliance and I've worked in, in, in 
in Chimpunga and uh, and in Chimpeden, helping and and learning from the people there working with the chimpanzees. Because of course, one aspect is caring for the animals in the wild or protecting wild habitat. You know, the people that are living in these areas. But sometimes when animals are rescued from either the bushmeat trade or illegal pet trade or other concerns, then sometimes animals have the only option for them or temporary option is to be housed in a sanctuary. And Jane Goodall Institute also has sanctuaries and care for chimpanzees in sanctuaries. And perhaps you could talk to us a little bit about the importance of these sanctuaries and the role they play in awareness raising. Well, the, the sanctuaries are tremendously important because once a country and the government, uh, because killing a wild chimpanzee is illegal, but you know, most African governments have other problems to deal with. But if you can show them that you have a place where an infant, infant chimpanzees whose mother's been shot can be cared for, then they're much more likely to, to say, well, yes, it, it is a crime. So yes, we will confiscate this baby chimp and give it to you. Um, they, they have, there must be somewhere for those confiscated infants to go. And I've been in countries where governments confiscated, there was nowhere for the infants to go. They went into awful, really terrible zoos and mostly they died. So the sanctuary where the chimpanzees are greeted by loving caregivers uh, who try and make up for the loss of the mother, they give them security. Uh, they know the sounds, reassuring sounds that a chimpanzee makes. They know the right kind of food, the right kind of milk that the infants need. And then gradually as the infant gets over the trauma, and sometimes they're really badly, you know, hit by the bullets that killed their mothers. And, but gradually they regain confidence and then they're put together in groups and gradually socialized and are taken out into the forest so they learn to climb trees and things like that. And uh, in Chimpunga, which you mentioned, the government has given JGI three large forested islands where it's almost like being in the wild, but they still have to have some supplementary feeding because, you know, a wild chimp will, will move long distances as the seasons change for different foods. And of course, on the island, they can't do that. But the supplementary feeding means that these, are, these islands on this big Quilu River means that tourists can come along in a, in a boat. And from the boat, they can see the chimps when they're given their supplementary food. So this raises awareness of people. And they see, oh, these poor chimps, but they are being looked after. And then they become interested. And so the sanctuary helps to raise the awareness of the local people who are involved in the caregiving. Um, the communities are making money, people buy the food from them and so on. And so awareness is ranged both in the visitors who come to see them and in the local people who realize, well, this is helping us. It's improving our economies. It's giving us jobs. Yes, absolutely. When we were working at Chimp Eden and you know, collaborating with the staff, we, of course, also, you know, watched uh, all the educational different activities with the visitors coming and seeing the chimpanzees and learning. 
And, uh, and in Chimpunga, I, I did go to the islands once. It was magical. Um, but at the, at the time there, this is some years ago, there was no tourism yet. But it's, uh, yeah, for sure, such a magical place also to go. And at the same time, also indeed learn how difficult life can be and people living in those areas and, and how the different organizations are working with the local community indeed in so many different ways. And so you mentioned the islands and some of you listening might have seen this really beautiful touching video of the release of one of the wonderful chimpanzees. Her name is Wunda in Chimpunga Sanctuary Island of uh, Chinzulu. And can, can you talk to us a little bit? There will be some links with this podcast if you're listening and you're wondering to learn more about the Jane Goodall Institute or to the Pan-African Sanctuary Alliance. Uh, and of course, the link to this video. But Dr. Goodall, could you share us a little bit about that experience? Well, it was one of the most amazing times of my life because it was my, I, I was visiting Chimpunga. Couldn't get there very often, you know, because I mean, the world's very big and there's 26 Jane Goodall Institutes and one me, but um, getting to Chimpunga and Chimpeden as often as I could. And so I arrived and there's Wunda and she's in a traveling cage ready to be transported to the island. Well, I'd never met Wunda before. I hadn't seen her before. This was the first day. So there, Rebecca, our wonderful veterinarian who's looking after the sanctuary, she was telling me the story of Wunda. Uh, Wunda arrived at the sanctuary even before Rebecca, way back as a little infant, badly wounded, but she was cared for and she revived. And then when she was about eight years old, she got really, really sick. She was a skeleton. And this time, Rebecca amazingly saved her life. Give the first, certainly the first in Africa, chimpanzee to chimpanzee blood transfusion, which saved her life. Anyway, she, the, the, the traveling cage is put on a truck. Yeah, the truck goes to the boat. And as the boat goes up towards the island, I'm sitting. And, you know, the, the big bars on the traveling cage. And I'm talking to Wunda. I mean, she was with people she knew, but she was obviously, you know, where am I going now? What's happening to me? And her hand was holding one of the bars and I was stroking her knuckle and telling her it was fine in my way of communicating. And so we, we got the cage very heavy, has to be because chimps are very strong. And the guys got it onto the shore of the island. And then the, the, the door is lifted and Wunda emerges. Well, she did rush to Rebecca and presented, which is what a nervous chimp will do to a dominant individual. And Rebecca is patting her. And then Wunda climbed up onto the cage and wondering really, She's looking around and she looks past me and then like does a double take, looks back, comes over and gives me this incredible embrace. And it, I, I was just moved to tears. We were, we were all teary eyed and it was the longest embrace, much longer than a normal chimp embrace. And then, you know, she climbed down and moved off into the forest. She's now... Wunda, which by the way, Wunda in the local language means close to death, which is how she was when she arrived as a baby. And um, so she's now 
She's now on a different island. She's the top ranking female. She even ranks higher than the males, although that'll change eventually, I'm sure. But, you know, all our female chimps in the sanctuaries are on birth control because we're already groaning at the seams and there's still unfortunately babies coming in, although less than there were. Um, and in all the years, two females, their implants went wrong and Wounder was one of them. And on the island, she safely gave birth to a beautiful young male who's now four years old and his name is Hope. Wonderful, just beautiful. and. It's also these sorts of stories of resilience of the animals, right? And, and stories of hope that uh, are really touching the heart. We have lots of facts, but we really uh, need touching the heart. And, and you talk uh, a lot about that and you embody that. And apart, of course, from good sanctuaries for, for animals everywhere, there are also zoos that you know, the, what is the role of a good zoo? And of course, the Pan-African the Pan Sanctuary Alliance, for example, also collaborates with lots of zoos for expertise, for um, resources, you know, to care for chimpanzees across their 23 different sanctuaries. But zoos play a role all over the world, good zoos, uh, for great apes, for other animals in the planet. But perhaps you could share with us uh, your thoughts about the role of good zoos. The role of good zoos is, first of all, people say, oh, children can learn about wild animals from, you know, film. Well, they can a lot, but it doesn't make up for standing near a living being and, you know, maybe looking directly into the eyes or the one eye, if it's an elephant, of those living beings and sort of getting the feel of beingness, if I can put it that way. And so that's something different for a child. If it's a bad zoo, it's not a good way because there's the animal in a terrible condition, bad surroundings. That gives entirely the wrong message to the child. Because the good zoos now, the richer zoos, they've made large environments for the animals. They're in a good social group. They have keepers who understand, are educated and care for them. And the good zoos are actually sending a lot of money to help protect the animals they care for in the wild. And veterinarians get amazing uh, experience in treating wild animals in a zoo and then can share that experience with, well, with sanctuaries, all of which employ a veterinarian. And a lot of wildlife uh, conservation groups have a veterinarian attached. So sharing valuable knowledge about the the veterinary care needed by different kinds of animals. So they can do an awful lot of good. And we did have one young woman, Hilda Trez. She was uh, just amazing. She would go to the bad zoos. So there are a lot of people in the zoo community who say, well, JGI shouldn't have anything to do with the bad zoo because they'll use that uh, to promote, you know, Jane Goodall came here. Jane Goodall representative came here, so we must be fine. And I say, those animals need help. And Hilda was amazing. And she'd go, she'd introduce uh, environment uh, enrichment, giving the chimps things to do because boredom is a huge problem. She had a way of working with the keepers and she had a way of dealing with, with the administration of the zoo. She was absolutely extraordinary. 
and she went to zoos in places like Iran and and um, Saudi Arabia. She was extraordinary. And so sadly, she died of a heart attack when she was just about to try and help the animals in the zoo in Nepal. Yes, yes, we. I have really wonderful memories of Hilda Tress. We worked together on the environmental enrichment resources that Pan-African Sanctuary Alliance uh, uses across the centuries. And uh, yes, our materials are still in memory of her because she contributed so many you know, photos and videos and her experiences. And uh, yeah, I've always really enjoyed uh, talking to her and working with her. And, and it is indeed those we're going, we talk about the importance of the individual, right? Making a difference. And also we might not like animals in, in farms or in bad zoos or in, in bad sanctuaries, but those animals are there and how can we make a difference for those animals? Because yeah, they don't really care about our lofty goals for the future or you know, when hopefully some practices will cease. But in the meantime, those animals are there. So how are we gonna help them? And, and Hilda Tress, yeah, was also a force. Uh, of nature in that space. Thank you for sharing uh, in her memory. And you talked about zoos and, you know, uh, Hilda also worked for a zoo and, and went out and, and zoos, you know, working in conservation, but also in education. I, I love the expression of feeling of beingness. And um, education, of course, is and sharing and learning from each other is extremely important. So perhaps could you uh, share why you started Roots and Shoots and, and how, in what ways does do these program empower young people or even older people who are part of it? Well, uh, Roots and Shoots began in 1991. And even back then, as I was traveling then all around the world, I was meeting young people, mostly high school and university, few younger children who seemed to have lost hope. And mostly they were just apathetic. They didn't seem to care about anything. Uh, but some of them were deeply depressed. Some of them were angry. And when I talked to them, you know, asking them, why, you, why do you feel like this? They all more or less said the same thing because our future has been compromised and there's nothing we can do about it. Well. The future of our young people indeed has been compromised. In fact, probably since the Industrial Revolution, we've been stealing it as we destroy the natural world. But was it too late? Was it true that there was nothing that could be done? I didn't agree with that. So Roots and Shoots actually began in Tanzania, you know, where almost everything has begun. And it was 12 high school students from eight different schools who came to talk about what they were worried about. It was after I'd been around the different schools celebrating 30 years of research at Gombe. And some of them were concerned about the poaching in the national parks. Why wasn't the government doing anything? Some about the illegal dynamite fishing, destroying the coral reefs. Some of them worrying about the street children with no homes, sniffing glue. Some of them worrying about the bad treatment of stray dogs or animals in the market. So I told them to get their friends together and we had a meeting, about 30 of us, I think, and Roots and Shoots was born with the main message, every single individual impacts the planet in some way, big or small, every day. Every individual matters and has a role to play. And because of learning about the interconnection of everything, 
in Gombe, we decided each group would choose three different projects between them. They didn't all have to do all three, but the group as a whole, one to make things better for people, one to make things better for the environment, one to make things better for animals. And um, that program is now in over 65 countries, growing all the time. We have members, few members in preschool, lots in kindergarten, very strong in university, everything in between, and more and more adults forming groups. Like we've had successful roots and shoots in prisons, um, in old people's homes, and now staff at big corporations are becoming involved. And if it's a multinational corporation, then their children in the different countries can very easily be linked. We've always tried to link children from different countries to get to understand, and they do understand, that much more important than the color of our skin, our language, our nationality, our culture, our religion, is the fact we are all human beings. We all have the same heart. We all bleed if we're hurt, cry if we're sad, and laugh if we're happy. Yes, that's just wonderful. I had no idea that you know different uh, different programs are being run now. Also, you know, in, in bigger corporations or also important places like prisons. And uh, yeah, that's and also indeed, I hear again and again, you know, bringing people together, bring you know your friends together, bring the community together. That is so important. And yeah, we all have a heart. We all hurt. We all experience joy, even though you know we have different backgrounds. And can you talk to us? You have written several books about hope. You know, reasons for hope, the importance of hope, and why is hope so important? Well, first of all, how do we define hope? Some people think it's being optimistic. Being optimistic, you just think, well, it's going to be okay. I'm going to be, it's going to be okay. But for me, it's as though the human species is at the mouth, the entrance of a very long, dark tunnel. At the end is a little star. That's hope. But we don't just sit at the mouth of the tunnel and hope that the star will come. No, we have to roll up our sleeves. We have to crawl under, climb over, work our way around. All the obstacles between us and that star, like overpopulation, like poverty, like overconsumption, like destruction of the forest, like pollution of the land and the water and the ocean. We've got to work our way through those. And as we go, Working our way, we've got to gather others with us. And that's, uh, to me, that is hope. But the reason it's so important, if you don't hope that your actions are going to make a difference, why bother to do them? And we keep hearing, think globally, act locally. But it's the wrong way around. Because honestly, if you think globally, and I defy you, to think globally and not feel a bit depressed. I mean, I feel depressed. But when people say to me, well, what can I do? I'm just me and the world's a mess and I can't make a difference. I say, no, not, not in the big picture, but think where you live. Is there something you care about? Do you care about litter in the street? Do you care about the intensive farm that you get the, the smell from? Do you care about the way dogs are treated? What do you care about? Well. See what you can do about it and try and inspire others to help you. 
And when they take action locally and see there's a difference, then, then we feel good. We've made a little difference. And feeling good, well, you want to feel better, so you do more. And you inspire others, and it spirals up. More people feeling hopeful. And then knowing, as Roots and Shoots do, that there's these 65 countries of young people doing just like them, then they dare think globally. So hope to me is important for action. And taking action gives you more hope to take more action. Absolutely, yes. And I love the analogy with the tunnel and the star. And also the star is like a navigation, right? You're never going to get there. And it's always, it's like, uh, it's not a distant shore we're going to arrive on. There will always be challenges. There will always be difficulties. There will always be, you know, but there will always also be opportunities. There will always, always be an opportunity to look at, yeah, what can I do in my, in, in my environment? Or what is it that I could do? And that's also the only one we can really control, right? It's the actions we take. And, uh, and I, yeah, the spiraling up and in being an inspiration, like you are an inspiration to, to many of us, uh, we can be inspirators uh, and become inspired by others that, uh, and we all have different expertise or different interests. And therefore, yeah, we all like little pieces uh, coming together uh, and creating that beautiful web that you were talking about initially. And so, you know, of, of course you talk often about every individual matters, you know, you, you can make a difference and you can decide what sort of difference you wanna make um, in the world and very much connected to the heart. Obviously, you know, science is important and philosophy and ethics and different sorts of knowledges, different peoples, but very much also connected to the heart. So perhaps in, in conclusion of, of this podcast, could you share a story that is, that is close to your heart? Um, a story of hope or, or some examples for people who are listening uh, that, uh, that, that is close to your heart? Well, one example is, you know, so many people lose hope because of the, the way that big corporations seem not to care for the environment and not to care for people and pay wages that don't allow anybody to save up money to rise out of poverty. And so I was talking to the CEO of a big international company uh, about three weeks ago. And he said, Jane, you know, for the last eight years, I've been really, really working to change the ethics of how my company, my corporation does business. Uh, here at home, the way we treat our customers and treat them fairly, but also along the supply chain, how we treat those workers, and especially the people who are sourcing the products that we need and to help their communities. And uh, he said, the reason I'm doing this is three reasons, actually. First of all, I've seen the writing on the wall. I've seen places where the natural resources, which are finite, are being used up faster than nature can replenish them. And if we carry on with business as usual, thinking there can be unlimited economic development on a world with finite natural resources in the way that we're dealing with those resources today, then that's the end of my business, other businesses too. Secondly, consumer pressure. People are becoming more aware. They don't want to buy products, and that's unless they're very poor when they have to buy the cheapest, which is why poverty alleviation is so important. But, you know, for most of us, we can say, 
um, did this harm the environment? Was it cruel to animals like intensive farms? Uh, is it cheap because of unfair wages? If so, don't buy it. So consumer pressure was having an impact on his and many other companies too. But he said, what did it for me? The thing that really made me go into this with all the, all the in intelligence and passion that I had was when my little girl of eight came home from school one day and she said, Daddy, they're telling me that what you're doing is hurting the planet. That's not true, is it, Daddy? Because it's my planet. That reached the heart. And that's the kind of story, you know, with the media, it, okay, it's right, we have to know about the doom and the gloom. But there's so much good out there in the world. There's so many amazing people tackling all these different problems. Such an indomitable human spirit tackling what seems to be impossible and very often succeeding. And so if the media would give more space to the amazing things, the rewilding programs, rescuing animals from the brink of extinction, look, look at the international surge of people wanting to help Ukraine, even though it seems impossible to help the people fighting on the ground. But that's the good in people. And I'm sure there's far, far more goodness out in the world than there is evil. But there are evil people, but there's much more goodness. And if we share the goodness and the good stories and the positive stories, that will encourage more people to do more because if they can do it, we can do it. If he can do it or she can do it, I can do it. Absolutely. Beautiful story. And again, a touching story from the heart, right? It is the heart that it felt that he wanted to make a difference through his company, through everything that touches his company. And, um, and it's those individuals. And indeed, yeah, thank you so much for sharing, coming onto this podcast and this important and the importance of interconnectedness and that we are all in this together, uh, together with other animals and this beautiful planet we share. And thank you for, you know, being an inspiration and giving us hope and, and also spurring us into action locally, as well as um, connecting globally. Thank you so much, Dr. Goodall. Thank you for giving me a chance to share some of my feelings.